I always have uh, two things in mind. Um, you may not realize this, but I don't just open up the Bible and play Bible roulette with our series. I don't just flip to a, a, a book and say, okay, we're going to teach the book of John. Um, whenever I decide to do a series here at TBC, I always do it very intentionally and kind of pray and think and, and read a lot. And so when I decide to do the book of John, what I always do when I do a book of the Bible is I have like, there's like the weekly um, topics we're going to cover, but there's always this kind of grand overarching theme I want to go with as well, um, that's sort of a backdrop to the individual topics we're going to cover. And so for the book of John, if I could summarize it very quickly, it would be this. Um, my hope is that as you come to grips with the truth about Jesus, um, either number one, if you're not a believer, not a follower of Christ, then you would decide to follow him and surrender your life to him. Um, if you are a believer, my hope is that as you come to grips with the truth about Jesus, that you would um, be inspired to love him in a different way. And that's kind of my theme for, for this book. And the reason why I say that is because I know, as a pastor here, I, I never assume that all of you are Christians. I never make that assumption. I always assume there's plenty of people out of here that are skeptical, cynical. Um, you're not really... You don't really believe this. You're just coming because your parents bring you. Um, so I always sort of speak to two groups in the room, uh, what I would call believers and unbelievers. Um, I don't do that to make it like a, you know, we're putting you in some other category, but that's just the reality of, of my role as a pastor. And so I love putting this stuff together for you guys so that we can hopefully, if you're not a believer, um, we can challenge you and, and hopefully to conviction so that you can come to know Christ and decide to follow him and surrender your life to him. That's our hope. We, we really believe here, we don't, we don't teach that um, you just start coming to church and, and you, that makes you a Christian. We really believe and teach here that there needs to be a point in your life where you decide, I want to submit my life to Christ. I want to surrender my life to him. And so the hope is that as you come to grips with the truth about Jesus, that you would really want to do that if you've not done that already at some point in your life. So look at John chapter 6. Today is a very familiar story that you probably already know, and it's called the feeding of the 5,000, but were there 5,000 people there? There were a lot more than that. The Bible tells us there are 5,000 men at this, at this place, and so um, that means there are probably at least 20 to 25,000 people at this location. So if you can imagine uh, American Airlines Center in Dallas being stacked full of people, this is the kind of crowd we're talking about in this story. So looking at John 6, verses 1 to 14, we'll look at uh, just 1 and 2 starting off. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So whenever you're reading the Bible, I know it's really tempting to see John chapter 5 and think John 5 happened on Thursday, and then John 6 happened on Friday. That's not what happened here. Um, when, when some people uh, say, when they look at this verse in John 6 verse 1, it says, after this, Jesus went away. Some are saying this could have happened months, like six months to a year after John chapter 5 took place. And so Jesus is being swarmed by crowds, and a large crowd's following after him, and it says here that they're following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, I want to tell you, um, there are some people that say Jesus was a good teacher, 
but they don't believe in miracles. And I admit, if you're a skeptic or a cynic in the room, and you read the Bible, you're going to encounter a lot of verses and passages that you look at and go, did that really happen? I mean, that's, that seems crazy to think that really happened. And even if you think deep down that it did happen, that you truly believe in miracles, you're afraid to admit that to people who think those kinds of things couldn't happen, right? Like, you feel a little bit stupid if you say to people that are your friends that are not believers, yes, I believe this really did take place. It's not just an allegory or a metaphor. It really did take place in real life. And so Jesus is healing the sick. And here's what I would tell you. I would say there's no other way to explain the size of these crowds unless something crazy was happening. Because think about the most amazing teacher you can possibly think of. Um, Is that person going to have 20,000 people following them just based on their teaching alone? I highly doubt it, right? And, And so these people are following him because they want to see the next thing he's going to do. And I would say there's no other way to explain the crowds following after him apart from the fact that he's just God doing miraculous works and the people want to see what he's going to do next. And so it says here in verse 2 that this crowd is following because of his miracles. As what we see here is that some people are following him sincerely, and they really are thinking he's the Messiah, and they're wanting to believe and put their faith and trust in him. Other people are just there for the show. Others are there because they just want to see what's going to happen next. In fact, if you skip to the very end of this passage, in the end of John chapter uh, 6, in verse, I think, 66, it talks about how some of the people that are about to witness this amazing miracle, it says that they just walked away. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine seeing Jesus Christ in the flesh do a miracle, heal someone, and then later on, when you're faced with the option of should I follow him, should I submit my life to him, should I surrender my life to him, I'm going to walk away because I was just there for the show anyway. That's all I care about. But there are these, these two kinds of people even in the church, right? I mean, there's, there's those two kinds of people, the people that really truly want to follow after him. You're part of the church. You see the church as a place to learn and grow and continue to learn how am I going to submit my life to him. But other people that just come along for the show, come along for the ride, there's, there's certain benefits to being a part of the body of Christ that I like. Therefore, I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow him, not in the true sense, but just because I want to see what benefits I'm going to get from being a part of the church. And so there's those two crowds, even in the midst of those that are following Jesus. Some people would say, you may have friends that would say things like, you know, if, if Jesus Christ showed up in the flesh, like at my school, and did a miracle, then I would believe. I'm sure you have friends that have said that, those kind of things to you. Um, if I could just see something that would give me evidence that I can put my faith and trust in him, then I would believe And what I would say to that person is there were many people that saw things even back then that miracles take place, and yet they still were able to walk away from him and say, I'm not going to put my faith and trust. I'm not going to believe in him in the the spiritual sense of that word. And if if you think of it like this, it's what what I always draw from that, the conclusion I draw from that is that mankind doesn't just have like a mind problem. We don't just have like a knowledge problem, do we? We've got a heart issue. So in spite of the fact that we can see things with our eyes and know the truth intellectually, there's something in our hearts that says, 
but I don't want to submit to God. I, I don't want to submit my life and surrender my life to him. My kids have this problem. I've got two kids, two small kids, and, and I can explain to my son, Landon, if you do this, whatever that thing is, you're going to get in trouble. He can have all the intellect, all the knowledge that he wants. The next day, what is he doing? The very thing I said not to do. Did he forget? No, he remembered because now he's hiding from me, right? And so what happens is it's not that we have just an intellectual issue or a knowledge issue. The real issue is internal in our hearts. And so in spite of the fact that these people see these miracles, see the signs Christ is performing, they can still walk away from him and say, you know what, I'm going to go the other direction. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to submit my life to you. I'm not going to recognize you as the Messiah because I want to live my life for me. And we see this at the end of this passage, at the very end of the chapter. And so in that crowd, there are some sincere believers. Other people just wanted the benefits of Jesus. And we see the same thing today in our, in our midst. We see people that some just want the benefits of Jesus, but not Jesus himself, right? Many of us are, have an issue with, yes, I want Jesus to fix something in my life. I want Jesus to um, repair something in my life, but I don't want to be convicted by Jesus. I don't want Jesus to look at me in the face and, and me have to look at Scripture and me have to be convicted about sin and repent and turn to him and ask for forgiveness and confess my sins to him. I don't want that kind of Jesus. I want the Jesus that just shows me miracles, the one that shows me signs, the one that shows me the, the showy stuff. I want that Jesus. And we still struggle with this today, even um, 2,000 years later. Look at verse 3. It says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these, so these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So they have 20,000 plus people walking towards them on this hillside. And if you have 20,000 people walking towards you, what's the first thing on your mind? It run, right? Like, get away, run away. And Jesus' first statement is, hey, all these people, how are we going to feed them? And Philip is like, wait, what? What are you talking about? You're, you're suggesting we try to feed these people? And it says in the passage, it says that Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And so it's kind of like a little unfair. It's kind of like a setup. Um, I mean, Jesus is the Messiah. He's all-knowing. He has a plan here. But he's putting his disciples in a precarious situation to where they don't know what's going to happen next. And here's what you'll see with Jesus. He always makes his disciples wrestle with things. Even, even when he knows the plan, he's like, he'll be like, hey, so what do you guys think we should feed these guys? And they're like, are you crazy? What, what, what are you, this, you're crazy to even suggest that. And so Jesus always makes his disciples and the people following after him wrestle with something like this. Why? I think he does it because he wants them to depend on him fully. And we can't depend on him unless we feel helpless and feel like we have no other place to turn. So it's kind of like a little bit of a setup where he, he says this statement, and now what's going to happen is they're going to see that, that Jesus has a plan here, and they've got to fully and completely depend on him for this plan. And I think the same is true in your life. 
that whenever you are in a situation that seems impossible by human standards, I think Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they want you to submit to them and be dependent upon them. Any situation that you're in, you need to look at it not as just the fact that it's an impossible situation, but look at it as a, as a chance for you to depend fully on Jesus in the midst of that situation. This is what he's trying to get from his disciples, I think, here, is he wants them completely and totally dependent upon him. Go ahead and do your first three questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss. All right, let's look down at verse 7. Look down at verse 7, and we will see the response of Philip. So look at verse 7. It says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So what Philip's talking about, their currency, denarii, um, was about one denarii a day was what you were paid as a salary, typically. So he is saying about eight months' salary for one person would not be enough to buy bread for these people. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So, here's what I imagine happened. So the crowd is so large, about 20,000 people plus, and so the way I picture um, this happening back then was that Jesus was, was so well known as someone who does miracles by the crowds that as he walked through the towns that there are people just clamoring for him. There, there are moms and dads saying, you know, Jesus is walking through town. Let's go chase after him. And so there's no other way for this crowd to grow to be 20,000 plus people unless that kind of phenomenon was happening. I picture it being like a thousand ice cream trucks, like going through the neighborhood and kids are pouring out of their, their homes, and parents are coming outside, and they're following after Jesus, which as a side note, here's a really uh, interesting story. Um, those that went to New York City on the mission trip, um, there was, there's, a, there's a brand of, of, uh, of, of ice cream trucks that they don't have here in Texas. Here you get like the frozen treat, and it's just like pre-wrapped. Well, there they have this thing called Mr. Softy. And Mr. Softy comes around, and it basically it's a chain, and they're, they're all over the neighborhoods, and, um, and they, it's like a Dairy Queen with wheels. I mean, they serve like the soft serve ice cream. You can have it however you want to have it. And so um, Daniel Eshbaugh, he's right over here in the middle. So every night we're at this house that we're staying in in New York City, and you'd hear the little, like, jingle from the ice cream truck. Now, the funny thing is, in New York City, this would happen at 10 o'clock at night instead of the daytime like it happens here in Temple, Texas. I mean, here it's like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Listen, if someone comes to your neighborhood at 10 p.m. with an ice cream truck, you're calling the cops, right? That's what you're going to do, but not in New York City. It's perfectly normal in New York City. So, um, so the little jingle would happen, and we're in a conversation, and Daniel just drops everything and takes off running, like every night for this ice cream truck, right? It's like he, he went from being a, a 16-year-old to like a 4-year-old in a matter of seconds, right? And so, but this is kind of the phenomenon I'm envisioning, right, is that when Jesus walks through these towns that everyone drops what they're doing and they're running after him, there's no other way to explain a crowd of 20,000 people that are clamoring and, and pining for Jesus. 
And so this is the kind of, of thing he's creating because of the things that he's doing. And so um, everyone rushes out so fast, they forget food. Now, something has to be really exciting for you to forget food, right? Like, you're going to plan, you're going to remember food. So these people forget to bring food, all of them mostly, except for this one very responsible little child. And, uh, and so there's this boy there in verse 9 with barley loaves and fish. Now, I know that if you're like me, when you were a kid, you pictured this story like this kid had like a basket of French bread, right? And um, he's sitting there with his French bread and his two salmon like over his shoulder. And he's just waiting for Jesus to ask him for his fish and his loaves. But what this really was, was like these things called barley cakes, which are really tiny. And this is the food of the poor. This is the food of the very poor in that culture. And maybe a couple of like fish that are tiny, like sardine-like to give the bread some flavoring. And that's what we're talking about um, in this story. It's not how you and I may have envisioned it when you were growing up and hearing this in church. And so this is the food of the poor. Now, you know when you go to the store at HEB, you, there's like the, um, the generic kind of bread and then the name brand bread, right? And if you've grown up like I did on the generic stuff and you're like, think this is bread, and then someone introduces you to the higher quality stuff like my wife did a few months ago. My wife bought this bread that is like from heaven, okay? This bread is like, I, I find excuses to eat this bread, you know? Um, normally bread is just like kind of a means to an end. It just kind of holds the meat and the cheese in place so you can eat your sandwich. But this bread, this bread is like its own meal. It's amazing. And so I find excuses to eat it all the time. So this is the name brand stuff, the good stuff. And so the rich people in that culture um, would eat the wheat bread, like the really good bread. So this is like the impoverished. This is the, the, um, the generic kind of bread that you might see at the store that's sort of like cheaper, less expensive. And this is what the, the more impoverished people would eat when, they would, when they'd have their meals. And so we don't know in the story if this boy just gave his lunch freely or if one of the bully disciples took it from him. We don't know the situation here. But just, it's a word of note, listen, a word of note. If you're going to steal a little kid's lunch, make sure you plan to do a miracle with it, okay? Like Jesus plans to do here. So let's look at what happens next at verse 10. It says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So the men's 5,000, about 20,000 plus total. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So once again, some of you guys are going to read miracles in the Bible, and you're going to think, just explain to me how this miracle would be done. If you're the more scientific-minded in the room, you're going to think, okay, there's this, this just seems foolish. It has to be an allegory, a metaphor. It can't be real. 
But I would, I would challenge you with this. I would say if that's where you find yourself today, you have difficulty believing this kind of stuff really happened, I would say this. Either you believe in a God that created everything or you don't, right? And if you believe that there is no God, then we have a whole set of other questions we have to wrestle with. And that's a whole different sermon for a different day. But if you believe there's a God who created everything, if you believe there's a God who, who spoke everything into existence, then it's not that big of a leap to say that in this moment, Jesus decided to do a little bit more creation, right? It's not that crazy to make that leap. Now, if you believe in a God who's sovereign, who's all-powerful, who's in charge of everything, cells and molecules, then it doesn't, it's not a huge leap to go there and to say, yeah, I can believe that. I believe this really did happen. But I want to explain to you, what's the, what's the point of this miracle? Because I know that whenever you're, especially when you're young and you hear this kind of stories in the Bible, you think, oh, that was a cool trick that Jesus pulled. That was, that was, that was interesting. But if you look at the deeper meaning of these miracles, there is always something that's behind what he's doing in the miracle. And so in order to understand this one, you've got to go to John chapter 6, verse 35. Go ahead and look at verse 35. Skip ahead in your Bibles. John 6, 35. And Jesus, a lot has happened between verse uh, 14 and 35, but I want to skip over that because it's, it's really important stuff, but I don't have time to get into it today. But 35, he says, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus, what is he doing? Essentially, he is pointing to himself once again, right? He's making the point that underneath your physical hunger, there is a spiritual hunger. Underneath all of the desires and hungers that we have on this earth, there is something spiritual happening. And I would say that, that Jesus satis satisfies a spiritual longing that nothing else can satisfy. Think of all the longings and desires in this life that we have. And I'm, I'm talking like anything, hunger, sexual, yes, I said that. Um, I mean, everything that we desire, right, everything that we have that's this physical in nature, um, I think that what God's trying to communicate to us is that even though you have all these physical hungers in real life, he is pointing you to something even greater, and it's a hunger for him. Have you ever thought about why you have to actually eat three meals a day? You ever thought about that? Like, why can't we be like pythons and just eat like once every six months, right? I think there's a, listen, I think there's a reason for this. I think God wants us to remember that in the same way you crave breakfast, lunch, and dinner throughout the day, in the same way your body craves food because it's hungry, your soul craves him. Your soul should crave him spiritually. Because underneath your physical hunger, there is a spiritual hunger. And what I would say to you is that if you're noticing a pattern here, there's a reason for that. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the woman at the well. And he said what? He said what? He said he is living water to her, right? She's thirsty. She says, I am living water to you. The man last week, he needed healing at a pool. And Jesus basically says by his actions, I am the healing water. Here they're hungry. And he says, I am the bread of life. So you're seeing a pattern here um, in these stories. And so Jesus takes this barley loaf, this simple food of the poor, 
takes this barley loaf and he breaks it and gives it out to the crowd. What does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus himself, right? Jesus comes in poverty. Jesus comes like that barley loaf, comes in simplicity, comes in humility, and his body is broken and given to the world for us. I mean, the picture here is vivid. The picture here is profound. And I think sometimes we, we forget how significant it is that Jesus, God, came to us in the flesh. We forget how powerful and significant that is for us. Because you may not realize this, but there is no other religion on earth that even claims that God came in the flesh. Like, there is no other religion on the face of the earth that even makes the claim that God came in the flesh on the earth. In fact, for our mission trip to New York City, we had to read a book um, about Islam because we're going to serve Muslims in New York City. And one of the things that, w- that was kind of, uh, that blew me away was the fact that they, they believed Jesus existed. They, in fact, claimed Jesus as one of their prophets. But they do not believe he was God. And the reason why they don't believe that is because they cannot fathom a God that would come to earth in the flesh. Because for them, it's like, that's stooping too low. I mean, God is up here. God is holy. God is set apart. And Christians would say, yes, we believe that that's true about God. We also believe that God is loving and compassionate and gracious and merciful, so much so that he entered into this world and broke himself up and gave himself to the world. A Muslim cannot fathom a God like that. I want to show you a picture of a guy. This guy's name is, is uh, Riza Aslan, and he, he was a guy that was raised in Iran, moved to the U.S., and um, he was raised kind of as an atheist in his home. At the age of 15, he was invited to a church youth group, and he, um, I guess, prayed to receive Christ, or he became a Christian, at least on the outside, so to speak. And um, he went to Young Life, actually. That's how he became a Christian. He went to Young Life, became a Christian, at least in name only. And then a few years later, goes to college. And in college, his faith was challenged. His faith was rocked. And he really came to grips with the fact that I'm not really sure I believe this. So he rejects Christianity. And he was told by a professor to explore the, the religion of his youth, which was, or of his country, his home country, which is Iran, which is uh, Islam. He begins to explore that and starts to think about, yeah, I really can't fathom there being a God who comes into the earth, like they say Jesus did, who's God. I can't fathom that. So he embraces Islam. But here's what's interesting. He writes a book recently called Zealot, and the book is about Jesus. It's a Muslim writing about Jesus because even he is somewhat intrigued by Jesus. Even if he's not going to put his faith and trust in him, he's at least intrigued by Jesus as a teacher. And I would say to anyone who challenges and says that Jesus could not be God, I would say, well, then how do you explain? How do you explain the thousands that would follow him on a day like this? 20,000 people. That's not just for a good teacher. That's for someone doing some profound and significant things. That is someone who, who really shook the world from its foundations. That is God coming in the flesh And God, in his mercy and grace and love and care for us, breaking himself up and extending himself to mankind and saying, take me, I am the bread of life, 
and I want to bring you spiritual satisfaction. I want to quench your hunger and your thirst. But not only does God come in the flesh to humanity, right? But he, the picture here is that there are leftovers. Like, there's so much that you can't even contain. The people here eat their fill, and they can't even contain what's left over. I think a great picture of, of how Jesus should be for us. That if you think for a moment that you can contain him, you're wrong. Your life is filled up to the brim and then overflowing and there's more to go around. And this is the picture being painted of Jesus. You know, I think there's a lot of people um, in the world that don't, when you say things like, you know, Jesus satisfies my hunger spiritually, he brings satisfaction in that regard to, to us. Um, I think there are many people that would say, well, I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't see how you can think that about Jesus. There was a girl that uh, we met on a mission trip a long time ago when I was in high school. We went to England for a mission trip, and there's this one girl at this one um, rally that we did, and she was talking to us about Jesus, and she said, she said, I tried Christianity once, and it didn't work. And I thought about that. I said, what do you mean you tried? How do you try? Are we just talking about socks here? Like, do you try these things on and then see if they, how does this work? Like, how do you try Jesus to see if he works? And if he doesn't, you move on to the next thing. And what I would say to someone like that is, if, if you try Jesus and you're left wanting, then you haven't really tried Jesus. He's not a piece of clothing to try on. It's like you, you jump in both feet, and I think you get more than you bargain for. You get overflowing. You get leftover. You can't contain all that there is, is to do with him. And so what you'll see in the story is that Jesus doesn't just provide a solution, but he is the solution. Do you see this? He's not just providing a method or a way for them to feed the crowd. He is the solution. He didn't just provide one. He actually is the solution. He is the person. He is pointing everything to himself. And so I think for, for many of you, many of you come to Christ um, expecting him to fix all the things that are wrong with your life. And if he doesn't, you, you get angry and you kind of move on to something else and say, well, Jesus didn't fix that. I tried him. It didn't work. I'm moving on to the next thing. But usually it's not the circumstances that need fixing. Usually it's us, right? Usually it's us that need to be transformed and fixed. And I think if we can say anything about this story, it shows that instead of, instead of us just looking for a solution to an impossible situation, that we look to Jesus as our solution. Here's what that means for you. Listen, whatever dilemma or thing that you're caught up in in your life right now, that the solution isn't Jesus help me fix this, but the solution might be, maybe he wants you to turn to him. Maybe he is the solution. And I don't mean, okay, I'll turn to him, then he'll fix it. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, you turn to him, maybe he is the solution to whatever situation you were finding yourself in. Maybe he wants you to stop chasing after idolatry and to turn towards him in worship. Maybe that's the solution. And so I love this story because a poor boy brings his fishes and his loaves to Jesus, and he watches Jesus do a miracle. This boy brings something insignificant and watches Jesus do something significant. 
And I think this is what Christ always does, isn't it? He takes something very seemingly insignificant, seemingly small like us, and does something profound and amazing and significant with it, right? In fact, if you look around the room, there are plenty of people in this room that are involved in all kinds of ministry here, um, whether it's impact, mission trips, uh, doing ministry throughout the year at CTLC, at Ralph Wilson Youth Club, at BCYC, at Jonathan Moore Apartments. We're going to start that in a few weeks, hopefully. Um, There are things happening, and here's what I would say to you. These are examples of people bringing their fishes and their loaves to Jesus and watching to see Jesus do something with it. And so if you don't have, if you feel like you don't have things to offer the body of Christ, I'm not referring to money. I'm referring to anything, but money's included in that, right? Money, gifts, talents, things God wants to see you do here. If you feel like you have nothing to offer or not much to offer, I'm going to tell you, you're actually right. You don't. We don't. I don't. All you have is fishes and loaves. But then you get to watch what Jesus does with those things, those insignificant things that you feel like aren't that big of a deal. You get to see what Jesus Christ does with those things. And if you're not careful, he very often does a miracle. Go ahead and uh, finish up with your last few discussion questions.